Part One, Chapter Four of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part One: The Relapse into Barbarism. Chapter Four: The Invaders. Those who live by agriculture or in towns and are descended from the remnant of the ancients. Are divided, as I have previously said, into numerous provinces, kingdoms, and republics. In the middle part of the country, the cities are almost all upon the shores of the lake, or within a short distance of the water, and there is therefore more traffic and communication between them by means of vessels than is the case with inland towns, whose trade must be carried on by caravans and wagons. These not only move slowly, but are subject to be interrupted by the Romani and by the banditti, or persons who, for moral or political crimes, have been banished from their homes. It is in the cities that cluster around the great central lake that all the life and civilization of our day are found. But there also begin those wars and social convulsions which cause so much suffering. When was the peninsula at peace, and when was there not some mischief and change brewing in the republics? When was there not a danger from the northern mainland? Until recent years, there was little knowledge of, and scarcely any direct commerce or intercourse between the central part and the districts either of the extreme west or the north. And it is only now that the north and east are becoming open to us, for at the back of the narrow circle of cultivated land, the belt about the lake, there extend immense forests in every direction, through which, till very lately, no practicable way had been cut. Even in the more civilized central part, it is not to this day easy to travel, for at the barriers. As you approach the territories of every prince, they demand your business and your papers. Nor, even if you establish the fact that you are innocent of designs against the state, shall you hardly enter without satisfying the greed of the officials. A fine is thus exacted at the gate of every province and kingdom, and again at the gateways of the towns. The difference of the coinage, such as it is, causes also great loss and trouble, for the money of one kingdom, though passing current by command in that territory, is not received at its nominal value in the next on account of the alloy it contains. It is indeed in many kingdoms impossible to obtain sterling money. Gold there is little or none anywhere. But silver is the standard of exchange, and copper, bronze, and brass, sometimes tin, are the metals with which the greater number of the people transact their business. Justice is corrupt, for where there is a king or a prince, it depends on the caprice of a tyrant, and where there is a republic, upon the shout of the crowd, so that many, if they think they may be put on trial. Rather than face the risk, at once escape into the woods. The league, though based ostensibly on principles the most exalted and beneficial to humanity, is known to be perverted. 
the members, sworn to honour and the highest virtue, are swayed by vile motives, political hatreds, and private passions, and even by money. Men for ever trample upon men, each pushing to the front. Nor is there safety in remaining in retirement, since such are accused of biding their time and of occult designs. Though the population of these cities all counted together is not equal to the population that once dwelt in a single second-rate city of the ancients, yet how much greater are the bitterness and the struggle! Yet not content with the bloodshed they themselves cause, the tyrants have called in the aid of mercenary soldiers to assist them. And to complete the disgrace, those republics which proclaim themselves the very home of patriotic virtues have resorted to the same means. Thus we see English cities kept in awe by troops of Welshmen, Irish, or even the Western Scots, who swarm in the council chambers of the republics and, opening the doors of the houses, help themselves to what they will. This, too, in the face of the notorious fact that these nations have sworn to be avenged upon us, that their vessels sail about the lake committing direful acts of piracy, and that twice already vast armies have swept along, threatening to entirely overwhelm the whole commonwealth. What infatuation to admit bands of these same men into the very strongholds and the heart of the land! As if, upon the approach of their countrymen, they would remain true to the oaths they have sworn for pay, and not rather admit them with open arms! No blame can, upon a just consideration, be attributed to either of these nations that endeavour to oppress us. For, as they point out, the ancients from whom we are descended held them in subjection many hundred years, and took from them all their liberties. Thus the Welsh, or as they call themselves the Cymry, say that the whole island was once theirs, and is theirs still by right of inheritance. They were the original people who possessed it ages before the arrival of those whom we call the ancients. Though they were driven into the mountains of the far distant west, they never forgot their language, ceased their customs, or gave up their aspirations to recover their own. This is now their aim, and until recently it seemed as if they were about to accomplish it. For they held all that country anciently called Cornwall, having crossed over the Severn and marched down the southern shore the rich land of Devon, part of Dorset, all indeed that is inhabited, and the most part of Somerset, acknowledged their rule. Worcester and Hereford and Gloucester were theirs. I mean, of course, those parts that are not forest. Their outposts were pushed forward to the centre of Leicestershire, and came down towards Oxford. But thereabouts they met with the forces of which I will shortly speak. Then their vessels, every summer sailing from the Severn, came into the lake, and, landing wherever there was an opportunity, they destroyed all things and carried off the spoil. 
Is it necessary to say more to demonstrate the madness which possesses those princes and republics which, in order to support their own tyranny, have invited bands of these men into their very palaces and forts? As they approached near what was once Oxford, and is now Sipolis, the armies of the Cymry came into collision with another of our invaders, and thus their forward course to the south was checked. The Irish, who had hitherto abetted them, turned round to defend their own usurpations. They, too, say that in conquering and despoiling my countrymen they are fulfilling a divine vengeance. Their land of Ireland had been for centuries ground down with an iron tyranny by our ancestors, who closed their lips with a muzzle and led them about with a bridle, as their poets say. But now the hateful Saxons, for thus both they and the Welsh designators, are broken, and delivered over to them for their spoil. It is not possible to deny many of the statements that they make, but that should not prevent us from battling with might and main against the threatened subjection. What crime can be greater than the admission of such foreigners as the guards of our cities? Now the Irish have their principal rendezvous and capital near to the ancient city of Chester, which is upon the ocean, and at the very top and angle of Wales. This is their great settlement, their magazine and rallying place, and thence their expeditions have proceeded. It is a convenient port, and well opposite their native land, from which reinforcements continually arrive, but the Welsh have ever looked upon their possession of it with jealousy. At the period when the Cymry had nearly penetrated to Sipolis or Oxford, the Irish, on their part, had overrun all the cultivated and inhabited country in a south and south-easterly line from Chester, through Rutland to Norfolk and Suffolk, and even as far as Luton. They would have spread to the north, but in that direction they were met by the Scots, who had all Northumbria. When the Welsh came near Sipolis, the Irish awoke to the position of affairs. Sipolis is the largest and most important city upon the northern shore of the lake, and it is situated at the entrance to the neck of land that stretches out to the straits. If the Welsh were once well posted there, the Irish could never hope to find their way to the rich and cultivated south, for it is just below Sipolis that the lake contracts, and forms a strait in one place but a furlong wide. The two forces thus came into collision, and while they fought and destroyed each other, Sipolis was saved. After which, finding they were evenly matched, the Irish withdrew two days' march northwards, and the Cymry as far westwards. But now the Irish, sailing round the outside of Wales, came likewise up through the red rocks, and so into the lake, and in their turn landing harassed the cities. Often Welsh and Irish vessels, intending to attack the same place, have discerned each other approaching, and turning from their proposed action have flown at each other's throats. The Scots have not harassed us in the south much, 
being too far distant, and those that wander hither come for pay, taking service as guards. They are indeed the finest of men, and the hardiest to battle with. I had forgotten to mention that it is possible the Irish might have pushed back the Welsh, had not the kingdom of York suddenly reviving, by means which shall be related, valiantly thrust out its masters, and fell upon their rear. But still these nations are always upon the verge and margin of our world, and wait but an opportunity to rush in upon it. Our countrymen groan under their yoke, and I say again that infamy should be the portion of those rulers among us, who have filled their fortified places with mercenaries derived from such sources. The land, too, is weak, because of the multitude of bondsmen. In the provinces and kingdoms round about the lake there is hardly a town where the slaves do not outnumber the free as ten to one. The laws are framed for the object of reducing the greater part of the people to servitude. For every offence the punishment is slavery, and the offences are daily artificially increased, that the wealth of the few in human beings may grow with them. If a man in his hunger steal a loaf, he becomes a slave. That is, it is proclaimed he must make good to the state the injury he has done it, and must work out his trespass. This is not assessed as the value of the loaf, nor supposed to be confined to the individual from whom it was taken. The theft is said to damage the state at large, because it corrupts the morality of the commonwealth. It is as if the thief had stolen a loaf not from one, but from every member of the state. Restitution must therefore be made to all, and the value of the loaf returned in labour a thousandfold. The thief is the bondsman of the state. But as the state cannot employ him, he is leased out to those who will pay into the treasury of the prince the money equivalent to the labour he is capable of performing. Thus, under cover of the highest morality, the greatest iniquity is perpetrated. For the theft of a loaf, the man is reduced to a slave. Then his wife and children, unable to support themselves, become a charge to the state, that is, they beg in the public ways. This, too, forsooth, corrupts morality, and they likewise are seized and leased out to any who like to take them. Nor can he or they ever become free again, for they must repay to their proprietor the sum he gave for them. And how can that be done, since they receive no wages? For striking another, a man may be, in the same way, as they term it, forfeited to the state, and be sold to the highest bidder. A stout brass wire is then twisted around his left wrist loosely, and the ends soldered together. Then a bar of iron being put through, a half-turn is given to it, which forces the wire sharply against the arm, causing it to fit tightly, often painfully, and forms a smaller ring at the outside. By this smaller ring a score of bondsmen may be seen strung together with a rope. 
to speak disrespectfully of the prince or his council, or of the nobles, or of religion, to go out of the precincts without permission, to trade without license, to omit to salute the great, all these and a thousand others are crimes deserving of the brazen bracelet. Were a man to study all day what he must do and what he must not do to escape servitude, it would not be possible for him to stir one step without becoming forfeit. And yet they hypocritically say that these things are done for the sake of public morality, and that there are not slaves, not permitting the word to be used, and no man was ever sold. It is indeed true that no man is sold in open market, he is leased instead, and by a refined hypocrisy the owner of slaves cannot sell them to another owner, but he can place them in the hands of the notary, presenting them with their freedom so far as he is concerned. The notary, upon payment of a fine from the purchaser, transfers them to him, and the larger part of the fine goes to the prince. Debt alone, under their laws, must crowd the land with slaves, for, as wages are scarcely known, a child from its birth is often declared to be in debt, for its nourishment is drawn from its mother, and the wretched mother is the wife of a retainer who is fed by his lord. To such a degree is this tyranny carried. If any owe a penny, his doom is sealed, he becomes a bondsman, and thus the estates of the nobles are full of men who work during their whole lives for the profit of others. Thus, too, the woods are filled with banditti, for those who find an opportunity never fail to escape, notwithstanding the hunt that is invariably made for them, and the cruel punishment that awaits recapture. And numbers, foreseeing that they must become bondsmen, before they are proclaimed forfeit, steal away by night, and live as they may in the forests. How, then, does any man remain free? Only by the favour of the nobles, and only that he may amass wealth for them. The merchants, and those who have licence to trade by land or water, are all protected by some noble house, to whom they pay heavily for permission to live in their own houses. The principal tyrant is supported by the nobles, that they in their turn may tyrannise over the merchants, and they again over all the workmen of their shops and bazaars. Over their own servants, for thus they call the slaves, that the word itself may not be used, who work upon their estates, the nobles are absolute masters, and may even hang them upon the nearest tree. And here I cannot but remark how strange it is, first, that any man can remain a slave rather than die, and secondly, how much stranger it is that any other man, himself a slave, can be found to hunt down or to hang his fellow. Yet the tyrants never lack executioners. Their castles are crowded with retainers 
who wreak their wills upon the defenceless. These retainers do not wear the brazen bracelet. They are free. Are there, then, no beggars? Yes, they sit at every corner, and about the gates of the cities asking for alms. Though begging makes a man forfeit to the state, it is only when he has thews and sinews and can work. The diseased and aged, the helpless and feeble, may break the law and starve by the roadside, because it profits no one to make them his slaves. And all these things are done in the name of morality, and for the good of the human race, as they constantly announce in their councils and parliaments. There are two reasons why the mercenaries have been called in. First, because the princes found the great nobles so powerful, and can keep them in check only by the aid of these foreigners. And secondly, because the number of the outlaws in the woods has become so great that the nobles themselves are afraid, lest their slaves should revolt, and with the aid of the outlaws overcome them. Now, the mark of a noble is that he can read and write. When the ancients were scattered, the remnant that was left behind was, for the most part, the ignorant and the poor. But among them there was here and there a man who possessed some little education and force of mind. At first there was no order, but after thirty years or so, after a generation, some order grew up and these men, then become aged, were naturally chosen as leaders. They had, indeed, no actual power then, no guards or armies, but the common folk, who had no knowledge, came to them for decision of their disputes, for advice what to do, for the pronouncement of some form of marriage, for the keeping of some note of property, and to be united against a mutual danger. These men in turn taught their children to read and write, wishing that some part of the wisdom of the ancients might be preserved. They themselves wrote down what they knew, and these manuscripts, transmitted to their children, were saved with care. Some of them remain to this day. These children, growing to manhood, took more upon them, and assumed higher authority, as the past was forgotten and the original equality of all men lost in antiquity. The small enclosed farms of their fathers became enlarged to estates, the estates became towns, and thus, by degrees, the order of the nobility was formed. As they intermarried only among themselves, they preserved a certain individuality. At this day a noble is at once known no matter how coarsely he may be dressed, or how brutal his habits, by his delicacy of feature, his air of command, even by his softness of skin and fineness of hair. Still the art of reading and writing is scrupulously imparted to all their legitimate offspring, and scrupulously confined to them alone. It is true that they do not use it except on rare occasions, when necessity demands, being wholly given over to the chase, to war, and politics, 
but they retain the knowledge. Indeed, were a noble to be known not to be able to read and write, the prince would at once degrade him, and the sentence would be upheld by the entire caste. No other but the nobles are permitted to acquire these arts. If any attempt to do so, they are enslaved and punished. But none do attempt. Of what avail would it be to them? All knowledge is thus retained in the possession of the nobles. They do not use it. But the physicians, for instance, who are famous, are so because by favour of some baron they have learned receipts in the ancient manuscripts which have been mentioned. One virtue, and one only, adorns this exclusive caste. They are courageous to the verge of madness. I had almost omitted to state that the merchants know how to read and write, having special licence and permits to do so, without which they may not correspond. There are few books, and still fewer to read them, and these all in manuscript, for though the way to print is not lost, it is not employed, since no one wants books. End of chapter 4